I'm going to talk about something totally different. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1. I've done several messages from 1 Corinthians 1, but I've never actually dealt with this passage here in Grace Life. And uh, let me preface it while you're turning there by saying this. If you've been paying attention for the past two years or so, you might have noticed that a recurring theme in John MacArthur's teaching has been the word remnant. He did that, I think, two years ago at a special meeting he did for the Founders Group or something like that before the Southern Baptist Convention when they met in Anaheim a couple of years ago. And then that was the theme of our Shepherds Conference this year, the remnant. And it's an important biblical motif. It's a profound truth. And it contains a lesson that today's evangelicals really need to recover and embrace. And the lesson is this, that God does not need the power of a majority or popular opinion or political clout or any kind of human might or power. He doesn't need that to thwart the plans of evildoers or accomplish his will in the redemption of sinners. God doesn't need anyone to commandeer the machinery of secular government in order to frustrate the plans of Caesar. Scripture says the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. He can turn it any way he wants. And in fact, the greatest triumphs in all of redemptive history have been wrought through a remnant, a totally unimpressive minority of weak but faithful people. And for the people of God, Triumph on, a, on, the, on any earthly field of battle is never, has never been achieved by the strength of horses and chariots and large armies. But God uses a remnant precisely so that his people will learn not to put their trust in fleshly weapons. 2 Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. And Jeremiah 17, 5, thus says Yahweh, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. So this is God's way, and it seems foolish according to conventional wisdom. In fact, there's a place in the prophecy of Zechariah where he is prophesying peace and prosperity for Zion uh, during a time when Zion was downtrodden by their enemies. And, and Zechariah acknowledges that even, even in the eyes of the faithful remnant, it seems impossible that the overwhelming advance of evil against them could ever actually even be defeated. They seemed so weak. Their enemies seemed so strong. And in Zechariah 8, verse 6, Yahweh himself asks, Is it too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, if it's too difficult for them, will it also be too difficult in my sight? It's a rhetorical question. And the answer is, of course, nothing is too difficult for God. He's not, he's not stymied or, or in any way intimidated by uh, large groups of people who oppose him. And and so what seems impossible and foolish in the eyes of this world's wisest, most clever strategists, it's not really foolish at all. It turns out that this seemingly foolish plan of God to accomplish his will always through a weak minority rather than a strong majority, that's wiser than all the wisdom of men, and that's the theme of our passage. So I hope you've turned there by now. Let me read it to you. First Corinthians 
chapter 1, verses 25. I'll start with 25. That's the verse I want to con- uh, concentrate on. And I'll read through the end of the chapter. Here's the text. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may abolish the things that are, so that no flesh may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, let me summarize the point of that text for you in a single sentence. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that in the plan and the purpose of God, the steadfast faith of a small disadvantaged minority is more vital and more effectual than the collective clout of a powerful majority. Christ's kingdom has never been advanced by the prestige and skill and sophistication of an imposing army. God ordinarily accomplishes his work on earth through the steadfast devotion of a faithful but otherwise unimpressive remnant. To quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, quote, God always has done his greatest work through a remnant. Lloyd-Jones says, get rid of the notion of numbers. He's right. We as Christians, and especially you, you and me as members of Grace Church, we are not called and sent by Christ to try to be cool and clever and coercive in order to impress the world. We're called to be faithful and to proclaim the gospel without altering the message or abridging it in any way. And this is a principle that the rest of first century evangelicals often seem blindly oblivious to. The work of God And the triumph of his truth does not ultimately require carnal might or fleshly power or human ingenuity or popular consensus or vast armies or stylishness or prestige or the approval of the rest of the world. We don't need any of those things. We don't need to try to fix the gospel to make it seem like it's less of a stumbling block or to make it sound less foolish. It, in fact, is not our prerogative to try to make the gospel of Jesus Christ more palatable to the world, especially to the academic elite or more acceptable to the guardians of political correctness or or more agreeable to the high priests of scientific dogma or more impressive to the wardens of postmodern fashion or more satisfying to the people who set the agenda for teachers' unions or, or more pleasing to popular opinion in general. We don't need to adjust the gospel to suit any of those kinds of thinking. Or to say it another way, God's truth does not need to be propped up by majority opinion. And in fact, God's truth is not enhanced by some celebrity who gives testimony to it. God ordinarily accomplishes his purposes through a ragtag remnant that looks fairly small and and seems pretty feeble, 
But he does that on purpose. And this is essential, in fact, to God's strategy and his plan of redemption. He has chosen to use a wretched remnant, not an army of aristocrats and intellectuals. And by the way, that's not only the whole point of our passage. This is a principle that stands out everywhere in the storyline of redemptive history. And again, it's a message the church today desperately needs to come to grips with. This is a truth that flatly contradicts all of the strategies and ministry philosophies that have dominated big movement evangelicalism for the past four or five decades or longer. God does not need human ingenuity to redesign some fresh church growth strategy for every new generation or every decade. And you realize, I hope, that across the sweep of redemptive history, major revivals and large congregations of believers are actually pretty rare. In the apostolic era, you don't regularly have 3,000 souls added to the church. That happened once at Pentecost. And after that, there was another significant revival in Acts chapter 5. Acts 5.14 says, More than ever, believers in the Lord were added to their number, multitudes of men and women. But the fact is, the New Testament churches that we know about, the ones that are described in the book of Acts and mentioned in the epistles and written to by Christ in the book of Revelation, all of these churches were, well, none of them, let's say, were mega churches. They were fairly small and often beleaguered congregations that didn't get any admiration or honor from the Greek philosophers or the Roman political elite or whatever connoisseurs of popular culture lived in those towns. Friendship with the world was not what they were aiming to achieve. That's not what they were supposed to be seeking anyway, and they knew it. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God, Scripture says, and therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. And he is including in that those who wish to be friends of the world, people who are desperately courting the world's approval for what they do and think and say. That's wrong. And this is actually a a simple and, and very clear principle taught from the beginning of Scripture to the end. In order for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven, the Almighty does not first need to win the general elections. And the only election that counts in eternity is God's choice. And and our text says he has chosen not many wise and not many mighty and not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world and weak things and base things and things that are despised. That's what God has chosen. And it would take me hours, actually, to survey every place where Scripture highlights this same principle for us. But you see it again and again in Scripture that God's power is made perfect in human weakness. I think John MacArthur's planning to preach on that text this morning from 2 Corinthians 12. That God's power is made perfect in our weakness. You can think all the way back to the early chapters of Genesis, remember that in order to preserve the human race so that you and I could be redeemed, God saved only eight souls in the flood. This was the greatest climate change catastrophe in the history of the world, right? And and 1 Peter 3.20 reminds us that only a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
Today's environmentalists, I think, would be livid, and I'm pretty sure they would insist that whoever devised this scheme, just an ark with eight people, he didn't know what he was doing. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and this was God's plan not to eliminate the human race, but to save it from ultimate annihilation. Noah's family was a very small remnant, and let's face it, they weren't all that spiritually mature, but through them, the whole world was repopulated. And do you remember how Gideon gathered an army? Remember that story from the Old Testament? Gideon is just an impoverished farmer, uh, hardly a powerful person. Gideon himself says, my clan is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. And so it's deliberately ironic, and, and even, I think, one of the funny places in Scripture, when the angel of Yahweh addresses him at the very start of Gideon's story, he calls him, O mighty man of valor, because Gideon looked like anything but that. And the Lord instructs him to go and strike down the Midianites, and tells him that he will empower him to do just that. He can defeat the Midianite armies. So when word of this gets out to the rest of Israel, 32,000 volunteers showed up to, to fight this fight with Gideon against the Midianites. And according to Judges chapter 7, verse 2, Yahweh said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, lest Israel honor themselves, saying, my own hand has saved me. And so Gideon tells anyone who is afraid and trembling to go back home, and 22,000 people did go back home, but 10,000 remained. Even then, Yahweh said to Gideon, the people are still too many. And he gave Gideon, Gideon remember, a test, whether they, whether they knelt to, to drink from a stream or use their hand to bring the water to their mouth. And when he was finished, the Lord had selected only 300 men to defeat the vast armies of the Midianites. 300 men, a small remnant, to face an army like that. And you remember how they did it. The Lord caused confusion in the camp of the Midianites, and they turned their swords against one another. And it happened, as the Lord planned, by means that made it impossible for anyone to think that this had been accomplished by the sheer military might of the Israelites so that no flesh could boast before God. And that principle comes to the forefront again and again in Old Testament history. Remember that the career of David was marred by two sins. One, of course, was that incident with Bathsheba where he basically ordered the death of Uriah in 1 Kings 15.5 records that actually as the only lasting reproach that was attached to to David's name and reputation. But there was one other significant incident where David incurred the Lord's displeasure, and it was when David took a census designed to measure the military might of Israel. The Lord was displeased because This was David, of all people, the same guy who had trusted the Lord's strength when he stood against Goliath with a slingshot. David knew that triumph for faithful believers comes not by might nor by power, but by the spirit of Yahweh. It's the whole point of the remnant principle in a nutshell. Psalm 33, verse 16, the king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. 
Psalm 20, verse 7, some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of Yahweh our God. And Psalm 33, 17 says, a horse is a false hope for salvation. Now, so you could put actually any earthly tool or strategy in that sentence where the word horse is, and it would still be true. A clever church growth strategy is a false hope for salvation. And let me give you one other example. In the time of Elijah, Ahab and Jezebel, I at least have to mention her name, they went on a campaign to completely eliminate faithful worshipers of Yahweh from Israel. And their campaign was so successful that an apostasy was so widespread among the people that Elijah was convinced that, and I think he really believed this, that he was literally the only believer left in the whole land. He told the Lord, the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, pulled down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And, and sometimes Elijah is, I think, unfairly criticized for his discouragement because we know that he wasn't literally the last man standing. The Lord told him, I still have left 7,000 knees which have not bowed to Baal. But stop for a minute and do the math on that. Historians say that a conservative estimate of Israel's population under Ahab and Jezebel would be two and a half million people. 7,000 believers in a population of two and a half million that's 0.028%, less, less than, well, I don't even know how to do the math on that. It's way less than 1%. That's such a small fraction of 1% that it's really hard to express. But it's a tiny minority, that's the point. Almost too small to even qualify as a remnant. It's no wonder Elijah was discouraged. You know, he had been in hiding for years, literally alone. You'd be discouraged too, but God had a winning strategy that guaranteed the preservation of his truth in Israel through this insignificant minority, a small remnant. And in Isaiah 30, verses 1 and 2, the Lord condemns people who rely on earthly wisdom or power or prestige because, you know, they think that human clout is essential to success. A lot of people today, a lot of people in the evangelical movement, a lot of people on Twitter saying this to us all the time. We need to, re- we need to regroup and use our clout to turn things around. God calls people like that stubborn children who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, so that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter shelter in the shadow of Egypt. You know, Jesus had no expectation that the kingdom of God would advance by winning the popular acclaim of this world. He never suggested that. Neither Jesus nor any prophecy of Scripture ever suggests that there will be any time this side of the millennial kingdom when the number of faithful people will constitute a a majority. If, If you're not prepared to be part of an unpopular minority, you won't be a very faithful or fruitful Christian. And in Matthew 7, 14, Jesus said this, the gate is narrow 
and the way is hard that leads to life and life and those who find it are few. He frequently said things to prepare his disciples for the inevitability of rejection by this world. Luke 8:18 8, or the other way around. Luke 18 verse 8. When the son of man comes, will he even find any genuine faith on the earth? He said John 15:18 through 19. If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you, and if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're not going to change that by any, by any decent strategy. If you're seeking the favor and approval of the world, you're looking for the wrong thing, because if you are part of the chosen remnant, you will be hated by the world. Jesus says so. And the vast majority will gladly choose the broad way that leads to destruction. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Christ even wove a thread, an aspect of this remnant theme into the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. The source from which the triumph of his kingdom eventually springs is purposely insignificant, like a mustard seed, and and quite possibly even invisible, like leaven. And again, the remnant principle shows up far more times in Scripture than I could possibly cover here. But if you take the King James Bible and a concordance and count, you'll find 92 uses of the word remnant in 91 verses of Scripture from Exodus through Revelation, and most, not all, but most of them refer to the fact that normally the people of God constitute a small minority, and yet it is through them that God accomplishes his plan. And that is his purpose. That is his design. It's not an accident, and it's not a tragedy. Romans 11, verse 5, even so, At this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. When you hear these reports that the current poll data show that people are leaving the church in droves and and you can actually see with your own eyes that our culture is purposefully moving further and further away from any of the principles that grew out of biblical Christianity Don't be discouraged by that, and and don't think that the future of the church hinges on the outcome of the next election. God's plan requires that we be faithful, not that we try to gain more prestige or more favor or more political clout in the eyes of an unbelieving world. So look at our passage. Let's see what this says. Paul introduces Three contrasts here in 1 Corinthians 1 that dominate the opening chapters of this epistle. And he keeps making these same contrasts. They are wisdom versus foolishness, strength versus weakness, and prestige versus insignificance. And he turns these values upside down from the way the world sees them. Earthly wisdom, he says, is foolishness in God's estimation. Human strength is utterly impotent compared to the softest whisper of divine power, and worldly prestige has zero right to boast in the presence of God. All these things are worthless, ultimately empty. And in fact, I don't know how the apostle could be any more clear about what he's saying here. God hates the wisdom of this world. 
He's utterly unmoved by the combined weight of all human power, and he has no regard whatsoever for human prestige. He regards human merit as nothing. And it intrigues me. I find it quite impressive. Also, highly significant that the Apostle Paul and not one of the 11 guys who had been discipled for three years by Christ, but Paul is the apostle who writes this passage because by the world's reckoning, the other 11 were all academically impoverished. They had not been trained at the feet of any rabbi who was steeped in elite Jewish tradition. In fact, the average religious leader of that time would have regarded them as totally uneducated men. They were all working class Galileans, mostly fishermen. Some of them were from even less respectable backgrounds. One was a former tax collector. One was a former zealot. A couple of the others might have been tradesmen. But none of them had any academic credentials. None of them. And during their years with Jesus, none of them actually even showed any particular skill for leadership. The one guy among them with the most influence was Peter. And prior to Pentecost, Peter's remarkable more for his blunders than for his skill or his prestige. So these men were not chosen for their rank or their cleverness. They were, all of them, neither eminent men nor experts in anything other than their lowbrow vocations, fishing and whatnot. To say not many were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. When you talk about the 12, that's an understatement. None of the original 12 had any of those qualities. Now, Paul was different. Paul had attained the highest possible stature as an academician. Acts 22.3 says he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictest manner of Jewish tradition. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee and a son of Pharisees. In Acts 26 verse 10, he says that before his conversion, when he was the main religious official overseeing the persecution of Christians, he says he carried out that task with, and these are his words, authority that was given to him from the chief priests. And when the people accused of being Christians were put to death, Paul says, I cast my vote against them, which is a measure of the power he enjoyed. He had a vote in this. And it means, at the very least, that he worked at the behest of the Sanhedrin and acted on their authority. Some people believe he was a member of the Sanhedrin at a very young age. But in any case, it's clear he had a close personal relationship with the Sanhedrin, they respected him and gave him much authority. This was the elite council that held power over all Jewish affairs. And Paul had been mentored personally by Gamaliel, who literally was the most famous academic of his age. Even secular historians recognize Gamaliel as one of the most powerful and influential rabbis Judaism has ever produced. You find his name in secular histories as well as in scripture. In other words, Paul himself had every one of the advantages he denounces here in 1 Corinthians 1. And so in a way, it's no surprise that he has so much scorn for these worldly advantages These were things that nearly cost him his soul. 
He lists all these same advantages in even greater detail in Philippians 3 when he's giving his testimony. And and then he says, as far as he was concerned, all of those things are just about as meritorious as dung. He counted them as loss, meaning rather than advantages, they turned out to be disadvantageous to his spiritual well-being, and they would have been impediments to his service for Christ if he made a big deal out of them. And so, nevertheless, it's a fact that the Apostle Paul was literally one of the not many who were indeed wise and powerful and of noble birth. And yet, throughout the first three chapters of this epistle, he says and does everything he can to emphasize that human wisdom and human strength and human prestige, these are not essential to the spiritual health of the church or to the success of the Christian mission. And in fact, those things can be downright detrimental to, the, to real spiritual success because God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is God's strategy for his work in this world and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that's really a, Long introduction, but now let's delve into this passage, and, and I want to begin with a question. Why? Why did God choose to advance the kingdom of Christ through the testimony of an unimpressive remnant rather than recruiting people who are the most admired and the most articulate and the most authoritative and the most aristocratic, which is, I think, what you and I all would have done? Why did God do that? Well, the answer is given right here in our passage. There are three parts to the answer. God is doing it this way because it confounds the wise and it frustrates the strong and it humiliates the proud. And so let's look at these one at a time. First, this is my outline, three points. Number one, it confounds the wise. Verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And the King James Version uses the word confound, and I'm using it here, but I need to explain that the point is is not that the wise are confused or baffled by this. They are, but that's not the main thing. That's true. They are confounded in precisely that way. Their worldview is confused and confusing and ultimately inconsistent with itself, But the point of the word Paul uses is not about how disordered and illogical human wisdom is. His point here is that those who are thought wise in this world will be put to shame. They are disgraced. Their ignorance is revealed by simple truths that the world deems foolish. But they're so basic and so simple that, you know, even the, even the, People that don't have that much smart can understand them. And and you see this every day, right? I mean, we see this all around us. You see some classic examples of it anyway in our culture where, you know, the academic elite and most of our political leaders and all the self-styled professional fact checkers frantically try to accommodate the epidemic of gender confusion by insisting that there is an infinite number of genders and, and an infinite array of personal pronouns that you can choose for yourself and 
In fact, if you've ever tried to make any sense of a news article in the paper or online where the editors have tried to accommodate some gender-confused person's wish to be called they instead of she or he, read an article that's that kowtows to that, and you will know from experience that using a plural pronoun to refer to an individual person actually renders your message unintelligible. It's foolish. And thus, as Paul is going to say in chapter 3, the wisdom of this world is foolishness. Worldly wisdom is exposed as utter foolishness by really the simplest, most elementary biblical truth. You can sum up the Bible's answer to all of the gender confusion today in one statement from Jesus, Mark 10, verse 6, in the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And countless thought leaders will step up to tell you that this idea of binary genders is outmoded and and it's foolish to them. That is precisely what Paul means when he says in verse 25, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And also the world's current wisdom on gender identity is a vivid example of the way how people who are hostile to Christ actually prefer sheer nonsense over even the most obvious truths. In the words of Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know the truth, they can see it as clearly as you and I can, but they suppress it. They cover it up in unrighteousness. In other words, their motives for doing this are unrighteous. I recently read a, a webpage that purports to demonstrate in quasi-scientific, academic-sounding terminology that there are at least 72 possible genders besides male and female. And I couldn't, I couldn't stomach more than one article like that, but I noticed there are hundreds of similar sources making all sorts of different claims about how many genders there are. Some said as few as seven. Others argued that there are as many genders as there are people. Apparently, no one really knows. The only thing they all agreed on was that they refused Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2, and the truth that in the day when God created humanity, he created them male and female. It's just one of several currently popular ideas that actually dominate worldly discourse today. And it ought to make us clear to anyone who's still capable of common sense, if there is anyone left like that, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Here's another example. The most honored people in the realm of academic sophistication savagely mock the idea of six-day creation, the truth that Our omnipotent and all-wise God put his glory on permanent display by simply speaking the universe into existence and fashioning it in six days' time. And furthermore, he filled it with clear and obvious evidences of his infinite wisdom and goodness and power, Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. But at the same time, these wise men and scribes and debaters of this age insist that the entire universe suddenly exploded into existence out of a total void with no cause and no intelligent design. In other words, everything came from nothing. 
and nothing caused it to happen. Or, as John MacArthur is fond of saying, the so-called science of our generation starts with a formula that's really absurd on the face of it. They're saying nobody times nothing equals everything. That is what the world's wisdom teaches, and it's pure foolishness, and yet the average person prefers to follow the majority rather than stand with the faithful remnant. And note this well, the worldly consensus doesn't merely doubt the truth of God's word. They hate it. They will mock it and deride it. They try to silence and suppress it. And in some cases, they will put you in prison if you say it out loud. Or worse, they'll put you to death if you confess that you believe God's word rather than this world's wisdom. Before his conversion... Paul had been one of the chief persecutors of Christians, and so he knew from both sides of the equation the reality of how utterly antithetical this world's wisdom is to the simple truth of God. And Paul constantly described the conflict between God's truth and worldly wisdom as a conflict that can only be pictured as all-out warfare. It's not just a disagreement, it's a war. When Paul told Timothy, for example, 1 Timothy 1.18, fight the good fight, wage the good warfare, he was reminding Timothy that the church, that is the true and faithful remnant, is engaged in war, spiritual warfare. And our enemies are not flesh and blood. We're fighting a war against demonic ideologies, Ideas, systems of ideas, worldly speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God is how he describes it. And the goal, our goal, is not to kill people or silence people even, but to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, it's an ideological battle, and the goal is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and thereby liberate people who are in bondage because of sin, we're to liberate them from these ideological strongholds that this world's so-called wisdom has raised up against the knowledge of God. That's 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. And you can't honestly portray the drift, the ideological drift of today's worldly wisdom as anything less than demonic. It is demonic. It's precisely how Scripture describes the battle that we're supposed to be waging for the truth. Ephesians 6.12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's describing demons and the belief systems that they foment, he says, are evil, demonic. But, you know, in our generation, there's a plethora of influential voices inside the church who insist that hostility between the wisdom of this world and the foolishness of God is, is a bad thing. We shouldn't make too much of it. And, and, and the culture war that this causes to say that God's wisdom and this world's foolishness are at odds with each other, that culture war is entirely the fault of the church because we don't handle things right. In fact, one of the most unbiblical ideas that seems to dominate today's big movement evangelicalism 
is this notion that Christians need to be finding ways to adopt and integrate into our beliefs as much of this world's wisdom as possible. You know, we need to live in peace with this world's values, they say. We need to make friends with the world system as much as possible. Let's not be adversarial to the world or to its favorite ideologies. That is 180 degrees opposite of what Scripture says. There's a video online where Andy Stanley, who purports to be a pastor and I think would claim to be evangelical, looks into the camera and makes a general apology to all non-Christians because he says, it's not the business of Christians to tell the rest of the world what they should think or how they should live. And Tim Keller argued for almost two decades that Christians should seek peaceful coexistence with all of our ideological adversaries. He said we need to, and I'm going to quote him, these are his exact words, we need to empathize and tolerate rather than demonize. And he said we should seek patiently to work towards as much agreement as possible. In fact, do this as a, if you, if you doubt my criticism of Tim Keller, Google his name and the word demonize. And you will find that, uh, you'll find a plethora of Quotations from him covering two decades showing that he was obsessed with this notion that Christians need to learn to empathize and tolerate and even adopt the so-called wisdom of an anti-Christian culture rather than, you know, pointing out that this world's values are perverted and demonic. For anyone who understands what Scripture actually says about spiritual warfare and the folly of friendship with the world. It's pretty hard to understand or sympathize with any point of view that says we need to be seeking as much agreement as possible. Scripture forbids us to tolerate rather than demonize. It's what 2 Corinthians 5 is, or 2 Corinthians 10 is all about. You know, we're talking about things like drag queen story time sessions and people who aggressively promote transgenderism and homosexuality and abortion and other evils. But we're told, don't ever say anything that might make the purveyors of these doctrines sad or angry. Don't call them demonic. That, you know, seems to be the new evangelistic strategy. Be as winsome as possible, meaning look for ways to agree ways to adopt these ideas. And it's not merely that today's evangelicals so often try to just avoid conflict with the world's beliefs and values. It seems that one of the main things large movement evangelicalism is engaged in today is a relentless campaign to try to adjust the truth of Scripture, including the gospel message, to tone it down or abridge it as much as possible so that the strategists and style coaches of the broad evangelical movement are trying to integrate worldly wisdom wherever they think they can because they think the church desperately needs academic prestige, respect from the world. And so they'll adopt high-sounding academic jargon. They embrace whatever happens to be intellectually stylish at the moment. They believe if they do this then maybe our faith won't seem so foolish to people who are steeped in the wisdom of this world. And that is not the approach Paul takes. The consummate intellectual, Paul, says that's the wrong approach. He doesn't try to 
defend Christianity with sophisticated-sounding intellectual arguments. He didn't even do that on Mars Hill when he spoke to the world's lead, literally the world's leading philosophers at the time, but his line of argument with them went straight to the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, even though he knew full well that Greeks thought that idea was the very height of callow absurdity. It's what he wanted to tell them about. And here in Corinth, a, a culture that was very much like ours, enthralled with both fleshly depravity and intellectual pride, Paul says, chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with superiority of word or wisdom, proclaiming to you the witness of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, wait a minute, because this is an intellectual society, and Paul knew that. Verse 22, Greeks seek for wisdom, and Paul understood, verse 18, the word of the cross is foolishness, and verse 22, to preach Christ crucified is foolishness. He knew that's how this audience would receive it, and furthermore, Paul had all the tools he would ever need to try to impress the Athenians and the Corinthians with his education and his erudition and his academic jargon. He could have done all of that, but Paul tells us he purposely did not try to make the gospel message sound any less foolish. He didn't try to dress it up with lofty speech and philosophical sophistication. He preached a simple message, Jesus Christ crucified. Why cloud that with artificial refinement? He acknowledges that the gospel is a stumbling block to some and sheer foolishness to others, but he preaches it anyway. Why? Because verse 24, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. He tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. And it intrigues me. And by the way, this passage in 1 Corinthians is the exact biblical text that first pointed me to Christ and my own conversion. And it's always intrigued me and amazed me that Paul continues to refer to the gospel as the foolishness of God, even though he knows it's wiser than men, wiser than any man, wiser than all men put together. It's wiser than Socrates and Aristotle and Einstein and Elon Musk combined. But Paul is willing to concede for the moment that the gospel sounds foolish to the wise men of this world. He calls it the foolishness of God. Chapter 2, verse 4, my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 21, God himself was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And here's why Paul didn't see any need to challenge the world's perception that God's truth is foolish. He didn't argue that point. Verse 27, because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The truth is that when we preach the gospel faithfully, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. It is a wisdom, however, that is not of this age nor of the rulers of this age. Because chapter 2, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And so the foolish-sounding truth of God confounds the worldly wise. It puts him to shame. 
It exposes his utter lack of understanding. And the duty of the faithful remnant is to proclaim the truth even though the world doesn't like it. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of the remnant. And in the end, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It's the only thing the gates of hell can't prevail against. You start exegeting the movies or teaching something else or or weaving it together with human philosophies to make it sound different from the gospel, gates of hell have already achieved a victory. But they won't. They won't prevail against the church with the true gospel. The truly faithful remnant get that, and that is what keeps them steadfast, faithful. Here's a second reason God chose to work through an unimpressive remnant rather than building the kingdom through a sophisticated public relations strategy. First, it confounds the wise. Now, second, it frustrates the strong. And this is the second half of verse 27. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. One of the most fascinating paradoxes and also one of the most important truths that we learn as Christians is the principle spelled out in 2 Corinthians 12.9. Again, I think John MacArthur's preaching on it this morning. Power is perfected in weakness. Fallen humanity has a sinful tendency to forget that God is the source of all strength. And even though we, we pray, thine is the power and the glory, it's a universal tendency for humans to take credit for whatever strength we have. We wrongly assume that we have control over our own physical well-being. You know, the older you get, the more you learn that's not the case. But all human strength is graciously given by God. It's, it's something to be grateful for, not something to be proud of. And in this context, Paul isn't just talking about our physical strength as individuals. He is expressly talking about how the world sees the church. Remember, they see us as foolish and weak and lacking in prestige. And so what, Paul says? Look at yourselves. Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. There are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. This is how he's describing the Corinthians to themselves. Yeah, and that would apply to all of us as well. We're not all that wise or mighty or noble. That's okay. It is a fact that if you look through the lens with which the world sees us, we are foolish and weak and base and utterly devoid of wisdom and power and prestige. Yet, he says, verse 21, this is God's strategy and it's deliberate. Despite what the cultural apologists in Big Eva keep telling us the world will not be more inclined to embrace biblical Christianity if the church can just shed this lowbrow, conservative, culturally backward image. They still won't like us because God has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world and the base things of the world and despised. That is his deliberate strategy, and that means You can't improve on his scheme or inject enough style or sophistication or status into the church to make our message and our ministry so appealing that it will overcome the prejudices and preferences of a hostile world. That strategy won't work. It never has. And on the other hand, God's chosen strategy 
doesn't need to be strengthened. It can't possibly be made any stronger by letting some self-styled church growth strategist revamp the strategy or, or redesign the church, and they try to do it all the time. You know, Brian McLaren wrote two books a little more than a decade ago. One was titled A New Kind of Christian, and the other one was A New Kind of Christianity. And, and in fact, the falsehood underlying all of Brian McLaren's, I would say his departure, his apostasy from biblical Christianity, it's all revealed in the titles of those two books. We don't need a new kind of Christianity. And we don't need Christians of a different kind. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And his strength is made perfect in weakness. And it's worth saying this again. All of the church growth experts' schemes to improve the church or revamp our ministry strategy, all of them have failed anyway. If you really look at it carefully, they all fail. They may gather large crowds but they don't have any impact on the lives of people that they influence. It's minimal. And if so, it's by the sovereignty of God through what little scraps of biblical truth they might get in those environments. It's not, it's not effective. Why? Verse 25, the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's why, verse 27, God has chosen the weak things of the world to frustrate the strong. It's the very same principle that explains why God required Gideon to go to war against the Midianites with an army of just 300 men when he started out and had at his disposal 32,000 volunteers. God sent him home. Might not seem to make sense from the perspective of human wisdom, but the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God chose to employ human weakness on the one hand to frustrate the strong and on the other hand, verse 29, so that no flesh may boast before God. So let's get to that. Here's a third reason God's people are an unremarkable remnant rather than a rousing multitude of dignitaries and A-listers. One, it confounds the wise. Two, it frustrates the strong. Now three, it humiliates the proud. And here Paul sums the whole issue up in the simplest possible terms. Why does God employ people in things that appear to be foolish and weak? Verse 28, God has chosen the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. And that is the sum of the whole matter. It's a theme, by the way, that if you pay attention you will find in one form or another in every epistle ever written by the Apostle Paul. No flesh has any right ever to boast before God. That's a recurring theme in every one of Paul's epistles. Romans 3.27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. 1 Corinthians 3.21, let no one boast in men. 2 Corinthians 11.30, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. Or rather, Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, by grace you've been saved, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, so that no one may boast. Philippians 3, verse 3, we boast in Jesus Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And he goes on, I won't read them all, but that was a perpetual theme with Paul. He hated the very idea of human pride especially the kind of pride that thinks it has some reason to boast 
even while it stands before God. In his pre-conversion years as a devoted Pharisee, that was actually the defining feature of Paul's religion. Boastful pride before God. That was the Pharisee's religion. Like that Pharisee in Luke 18, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. Paul was like that. He prayed like that. He thought like that. But conversion utterly erased that attitude from Paul, and he keeps reminding us what an egregious sin it is to have confidence in our own flesh. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, where Paul describes what the spirit of the age will be like in the last days when perilous times will come, he says that boastful human pride is practically the defining mark. Here's how he describes it. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but having denied its power. In other words, there's nothing good in them. And yet, their besetting sin is this boastfulness. And, And I read that passage, I think... It sounds like a description of the evangelical megachurch culture of our time. It's not merely the secular world that cultivates those evil traits, but a large segment of the visible church also fits that description. And if the church is ever going to regain any semblance of health, we need to learn the lesson of this text and the principle of the remnant, and that is more important than what's happening in the political realm right now. I'm saddened, but not discouraged when so many people, including Christian celebrities, tend to deconstruct their faith and deconvert from Christianity and depart from the church. And scripture says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be manifested that they are not all of us. That's 1 John 2.19. And it makes clear that God has a good purpose for driving people out of the church when their faith is false and superficial. It's the same reason he radically diminished the size of Gideon's army. It's the same reason Jesus chased off so many of his followers in John chapter 6. God always chooses a remnant rather than a massive multitude so that our faith will not be in the wisdom and power of men and majorities, but in the power of God. The current wave of people who apostatize, you watch that, I I hope you're as saddened by it as I am, but I also realize that's not weakening the church or nullifying our testimony. It is, however, pointing us back to the true source of our strength and reminding us that the only power and efficacy we have as proclaimers of the gospel does not lie in might or power or human wisdom or clever strategies or any of the fleshly instruments that Christians tend to rely on. But the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, and yet they are divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. That again is 2 Corinthians 10.4. 
The gospel itself is the power of God for salvation, and we don't need a large army to win this spiritual war. We just need to learn to rely on him who truly is our strength and our salvation. The battle is his, the strength is his, the triumph will be his. And one last thing, if you ever feel ashamed of the church or or your fellow believers because they seem foolish and feeble and menial, you need to reorient your perspective. Don't look at the church through a worldly lens. This congregation that looks so unimpressive to the world, you know, people without a clue, without clout, without class, they are actually some of the most blessed and beloved and privileged people ever. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, just waiting to be glorified with him. And even with all that gracious privilege, we have nothing to boast about. Back to our text for the last time. Paul ends this chapter with a powerful declaration of his Calvinist convictions. Verse 30, it is by his doing, in other words, God is the one who gets all the credit for the fact that you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the whole lesson of the remnant. And that's why this is such a a powerful principle. To God alone belongs forever the kingdom and the power and the glory. It's not a novel truth. In fact, let me sum it up and end with a quote from the prayer of David in 1 Chronicles 29, 11. He writes, Yours, O Yahweh, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.